0: Greetings, friends! You are listening to We Own This Town Music, the podcast for showcasing new and notable tracks from Nashville and surrounding areas. I'm your host, Michael Eads, and this is Volume 337. As you can tell from the title of this episode, we've got a special one lined up here. In just a moment, I'll be chatting with three members of The Features to discuss their latest release, The Mahaffey Sessions, 1999. For anyone that isn't familiar, The Features were a highly revered rock band from the mid-'90s through 2017. They released a number of albums, explored a ton of different styles, and always put on a hell of a live show. You'd be hard pressed to find anyone that didn't enjoy the features on some level. Way back in 1999, the band was experiencing some changes. They'd released an EP with their indie label, SpongeBath Records, and even recorded a full length album with producer Richard Dorch, which had some songs released as a 10 inch, and some songs released on some samplers. A few band members had left, and a new band member had joined, drummer Rollam Haas. The band went back into the studio with producer Matt Mahaffey, also a labelmate of theirs on Sponge Bath with the band Self, to record another full-length album. That album was also never officially released, until January of 2023 in the form of this new album, The Mahaffey Sessions 1999, about 24 years after its inception. For transparency, the album was released by my indie label, YK Records. So my interest in sharing this interview on this podcast is a bit biased. I want to promote the record, and this is an excellent forum to do so. However, I actually worked at SpongeBath Records back in 1999 and got my hands on a CDR of the album way back when. I've been listening to this record for over two decades, very, very regularly. It's the impetus for me approaching the band in the first place to release it. I love this album and always thought it was beyond unfortunate that it was never released. All that is to say, even if YK Records hadn't put this out and someone else had, I'd still be talking to the features in this forum because it's a fantastic record. One more important note as we go into this chat, the world of music was very different in 1999. We talk about this a little bit in the interview, but it's good to remember that perspective. Spotify, Apple Music, Google Play, none of them existed. The iPod didn't even exist. Recording an album and releasing it on an indie label was certainly possible, but bands were still largely driven to sign to a major. There really wasn't much of an alternative at the time because self-distribution just didn't exist. And with that, let's get into it. I gotta give a huge thanks here at the top for the time that the band spent with me. It's not easy to remember details of something that happened a lifetime ago, but they provided such fantastic insight. I am forever grateful to them for letting me release this record, but more so just for making it in the first place. So thank you, the features. And here we go with our track by track discussion of the Mahaffey Sessions, 1999. That pretty much is it. We're started. I'm joined here today with three members of The Features. We're missing one. Mark Bond is not here with us today, but I have Rollam Haas. Say hello. Hi. I have Roger Dabbs. Hello. (laughs) And I have Matthew Pelham with us today. We're going to talk about this record, The Mahaffey Sessions, 1999. Uh, This is coming out on YK Records, which is my little indie label, so I'm definitely biased in talking about it. But this was a record that I got a bootleg copy of uh, when I worked at SpongeBath in 1999, just floating around the office. I think everyone made a copy of this. And it has been in my rotation to some degree for 20 plus years. I love these songs. They're incredible. I have saw you all live, I don't know how many times, countless amounts of times, and heard these songs so many times. I did the weird fan thing where with the, when some of these songs came out as b-sides on European singles, I made sure to get those so that I would have some version of them. They're great songs. I'm glad they're finally all together. I really can't thank you enough for giving me the opportunity to sort of compile them and put them out into the world. But let's just rewind as much as we can and talk about where was the band at in 1999? You're living in Murfreesboro, Tennessee. I don't think any of you were attending Middle Tennessee State University. Uh, Had you? Not me personally, no. How did you end up in
1: Murfreesboro? I was a fan of the band before I joined it. So I used to go see them in high school. And my my first time was at, what was the name of that club? It went through a lot of names. I think it was 527 Main Street at Mm. the time. And then they were opening for uh, Real Big Fish. Oh, yeah. And a friend of mine in high school was a fan of Real Big Fishes, So like took me out to see them. But the features opened. And then it was just like immediately. Yeah. Like who the fuck is this? Like,
0: the features with a ska band is a really good bill. Yeah, you know, yeah. that makes a lot of sense. Yeah.
1: But I, <laughs> if I'm remembering right, they walked out to this weird version of the A Team theme, where it had the whole thing, like, and it's like, and the features, and then they just, yeah, it just floored me. <laughs> <laughs> and then uh, kind of found out maybe like three years later through a friend of a friend that they had lost their drummer. And then I had Matt's number and just pestered him for an audition. Oh, yeah? Yeah. yeah.
0: Really? That's amazing. Yeah. How much previously had you been in the band before you went into the studio?
1: Not long. I mean, I if I'm remembering right, it was late 98 when I joined. Okay. So I would say maybe two months later uh don sergio quit if even it could have been like a month later or two weeks later wow but yeah so so yeah it it was it was pretty much like like i feel like at this point we had kind of like found our sound a little bit but if memory serves it kind of like took up to around this period before i feel like we actually had a cohesion yeah yeah
2: we i I remember like right after you know we auditioned and rollin tried it out we had a a house that we practiced in 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 murfreesboro and Mm -hmm. um so we practiced for quite a while and then we actually did some demoing like our first demos with uh over brian carter's house and matthew came in and like helped you know with the drums and stuff like uh you know
3: yeah
2: but yeah i I remember like being over at carter's house and And recording some of these uh, like first iterations of things.
0: Interesting, Matt. Do you remember playing for Real Big Fish and then having Rollam pester you?
2: Yeah, I do, man. I do. I remember all of
4: that. I remember. I remember being. Uh, I was Hannibal as well as as far as the A team members went. Um, but the uh, the uh, the thing I remember a lot about this period is that Rollam joined the band. It sort of revived the band. I feel like we had been through kind of a lot between the early Sponge Bath years with trying to record things and put them out. And I think we had just sort of like, I don't know, know, the band had just sort of reached this point where it was like, oh, you know, if we don't find a drummer, it's like, what are we going to do? We might as well just like start, you know, figuring out something else. And then Rollum came along and and just sort of, he he just energized the band. And he brought with him like, influence and like motivation and like right right before we started this record or i think it was right before we started this record Rollam and i we had a house together on vine street in murfreesboro and uh we would work on ideas quite a bit and i feel like that's like ron said i feel like at this point is when we sort of everything got more cohesive and we sort of had a a a better idea of what we were going to go for what our sound was going to be and how to approach songs and even our live shows it just sort of all kind of came together at this point
3: Mm
4: -hmm. yeah i you know i'll save part of this Uh, i think (laughs) you can tell so to me the record there's i think there's three songs that are pre-rollum and to me it that's like the thing with the record like all the songs that we had written with Rawlum and recorded, you know, at at Mahaffey's, those songs they still really hold up well to me. And then the the few that were earlier feature songs that were recorded during these sessions, they just they don't have the same. Uh, it's not so much energy; they don't have the same excitement to me. They just seem a little bit like they're they're a little harder for me to listen to. So I don't know. I feel like. It was a really kind of a magical time. I feel like for the band, and I do feel like this at this time. It was you know just given throwing this out there. Rollum was like a very key Interesting. part of that. Thank you. Him joining
0: us. Yeah, that's fascinating. Thanks, yeah. Rollum. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, I
2: remember, <laughs> I remember when we were having those auditions, like when Rollin came in, it was just, I don't know, it just, everything it, seemed to click and it was magic.
4: <laughs> yeah, it was, man. He was, he was like something else. You know, he came in and he was just like, and you know what's funny is like <laughs> Don, Don Sergio, you know, we had tried out a couple of other guys and Don was, he really, really liked another drummer. And I feel like if we had gone to the other drummer, Don may have stayed in the band, but... <laughs> <laughs> he was like, eh. and then it, years later, Don was like, man, you know, Rollum was definitely the right choice, dude. That guy's a freaking badass. That's <laughs> funny. So, I didn't, so I didn't funny. realize
1: it was that big of a point of contention with Sergio. That's funny.
4: Now you know, man. Now you know. Right. You can,
1: yeah. But it's, it's, it's I won't hold it against him. It's cool. Yeah.
4: Uh, he realized in the end the mistake he made. For, <laughs> <laughs> but I'm not, not sticking with you.
1: Well, for for me too. Like speaking on the other end of that, like all the bands I'd played with in high school were like really into like Corn and Limp Biscuit and Rage Against the Machine. Yeah. So I remember like at the audition, like talking with everyone, and it was like, oh, y'all like Can and the Kinks and like like all these groups or whatever. So like growing up playing in Lebanon with like pretty like aggressive music. Yeah. Like that's all that was around was like yeah, it was like huge for me yeah i just play music that i liked listening to i know that seems simple no no it's like oh wait you're playing like great
0: songs with musicians you respect that are bringing these things to it and i think it's also like to that point i think it's also important to remember and to like kind of set the context for anyone that's listening that like in 1999 you did not have spotify no you did not have itunes music like none of that i don't even think the ipod existed at that point right so like if you were listening to music you were hearing it on the radio or you found it through a magazine or a friend told you about it yes correct and so if you didn't have someone in your life that was like check out can check out the kinks You didn't hear that.
1: Totally. And literally like say can for me was like, I was, you know, so big into Brit pop and would order like import singles with B sides, And if blur were interviewed in mojo, it's like, Oh, I got to read that. And that's how I heard about can was like them just talking about him. And it's like, who the hell is that and then yeah. ordered like a greatest hits thing or whatever which yeah. is what i could find
0: i was know? a member of columbia house uh you know cds comp 12 for a penny oh, yeah, coming did, to my yeah. house i didn't know what to order i didn't get can or the kinks because i didn't know what to order i mean have i don't any even that think stuff. that stuff
1: was available honestly it was <laughs> like for me it was like madonna immaculate collection use your illusion one and two or whatever you could oh. just
0: get well, those know. are solid choices though those are good you
4: know, it's funny because I was this. This is exactly what I was talking to. You know, PJ called yesterday and did the, the scene interview. Yeah, and I was. He asked that. You know, he said, "You know, this is pre phones, pre internet, and like access to music like that." How did How did you approach music influences and things at that time? And and it's funny, but Can was you know was like the the one the band I referenced in that. But it was like you had to. For me, you would go from Murfreesboro to Nashville to go to Tower Records mm-hmm. and look at their catalog for import music, like import CDs. Yeah. And you had to go; you, that, it was a, it was a, such a struggle to you know, or like such a excursion to to do this whole thing. But you had to go to Nashville, look through their catalog, find a can CD, order it, and it would be like $25, 30 bucks, which was an insane amount of money to me at the time. And you, you took a, and you took a complete chance on it. You yeah. know, like, am I going to like this or not? And you're basically basing it on someone saying, "Hey, this band is really great," and someone, you know, maybe someone you respected or someone you admired or whatever. And and you just took a chance on it. Hmm. And then you would go home and you would wait like two or three weeks, and you'd have to drive back to Nashville to pick it up. And you'd go and you'd pick it up and be all excited. And you know, if it was a good purchase, then you're like, yes, you know, this is freaking awesome. You'd play it for everybody you knew. And if not, you'd just be like, ah, oh, crap! I just wasted like thirty bucks. And, yeah. like, you No know, telling how much money and gas and like all this time, you know. But it that, it was a it was a process to like make that kind of thing happen at that time. It was insane. When you when you think about how easy it is now, it's yeah. it's. Really, I know people talk about this all the time, but.
0: But, well, I mean, it, it's been such a quick change. Like yeah, when the it, digital oh. music happened, it was it was around this time when like MP3s started being a thing. But it happened really fast, and now like mm-hmm. so much music is just a tiny search away. It's a very very different experience to listen to music okay. now than it was twenty years ago. It's well, yeah, hugely different.
1: And it's impossible to like quantify this, but it it is like to Matt's point, like. I think the way you would listen to it would be different, rather than just skimming something. Yeah, you're, you know, you're obviously going to like take time and live with this thing. You just spent thirty bucks on a little bit more than just like going on Spotify and going.
0: Yeah, like, you know. oh, for sure, I would get mix CDs in uh the CMJ, the College Music Journal. They would put out a mix CD every month with oh, their yeah. magazine. I used to get those too, yeah. I loved that same. thing. And I would listen to it top to bottom for the same reason. Like, why would you skip through? Who knows what this song is? Who knows where it's going to go? Mm-hmm.
4: Yeah. And you would just sit around and, like, and I remember when we had the house on Vine Street, <laughs> there was like one night in particular. It's like, who like, it was like, so Jim O'Shea lived with us and William Tyler came over one night. Maybe uh, Joe Colvert came over and we were just all sitting in the living room, like, lis- listening to random stuff, whether it was like Para Ubu. Or can or what and it, you know everyone's like oh cool what's this you know because it was just so hard to hear it unless you had that sort of you know you got together with someone and exposed them to it or then they exposed it to you it's it's it was nuts man but
0: there's like something really i don't know beautiful about it agree it was nuts. absolutely there's something very beautiful about it that does beg the question how did you have these influences to begin with Like, you ordered Madonna and Guns N' Roses, but how did you um, know Can It was a Blur interview?
1: So, yeah, me personally, like, when I started playing music, like, initially, I started on guitar, but it was, like, Duran Duran and The Police and The Beatles were, like, kind kind of three big groups for me. And so, like... Duran Duran was, like, my jumping-off point, and they'd always talk about, like, Roxy music and, like, Chic in particular. So I got into both those bands, and Roxy's kind of its own wormhole at least to, like, Eno. Chic leads to other disco and dance music. And then Blur Girls and Boys was out, and I just remember being like, oh, this is kind of like Duran Duran. And then that kind of opened up, like, a lot of, like, British stuff to yeah. me. So, like, Wire and Magazine. Yeah. And kind of, like, some post punky groups. Can... Yeah, and it's just—I mean, it's probably similar for a lot of people. You know, it's like you get into things, like even the Beatles. I think in some roundabout way, I think people can get into Bob Dylan through them, sure, a little bit sometimes. Yeah. You know, and that can lead to other things. And yeah, but yeah, that—that that was my personal progression. Yeah,
3: with
0: that stuff. What about you two, Matt, Roger? How did you? What was your upbringing in music? How did you, how did these come to you? How did music come to you?
2: I remember early on matt and i used to go to the mtsu radio station and um, what was the dj we liked? jack oh yeah that's that's what i was going to talk i was going to talk about andrew
3: yeah
4: andrew um, yeah and so when we played at the chameleon cafe which was this small coffee shop in murfreesboro we just started playing i mean we were like super green and you know for anyone to listen to us it was really nice but you know andrew conley he was this the singer for Jack, a band called Jack, and they had been around Murfreesboro for years. Andrew was he was usually at shows, and there was a record store in the back of the uh, in the back of the Chameleon Cafe, and um, he would always be back there like, digging through records. And we would play a show, and he'd be like, "Hey man, you're you know that that was pretty good. You know, I, you guys ever heard? It reminds me of Television. You know, you ever heard of Television? Mm. And no, you know, I I'd, I'd never heard of Television. This was like '94, <laughs> but." Andrew like he he just sort of mentioned all these bands you know hey there's this band and this band and this band and uh, through him mentioning those bands and some random mixtape that I had gotten that Andrew had made I, I got I don't know exposed to a lot of stuff so you know there's Andrew and then the other another member of Jack Jimmy Cunningham who's the guitar player and they, they both they're just like en- encyclopedias for um, music. You know they they know a lot about it and they at really early on i feel like were exposing us to really good music yeah we you know we grew up in sparta so the most we really got was what what you could hear on 103 kdf mm-hmm. which was like the classic rock radio station yeah and that that was it or mtv which we didn't even get in sparta until like the late 80s so you know it man it going to college we started out and i think somehow we had gotten our hands i had gotten my hands on a copy of camper uh, van beethoven's telephone free landslide victory and that that was pretty much for the early features that was like the sort of like a, our blueprint of <laughs> like what what music was i mean like most of the songs we wrote sounded like a camper van beethoven song off of telephone free landslide victory and then we like started sort of adding to things from that based off of recommendations we had gotten from you know whether it was Andrew or Seth Timms or yeah. people like that. So uh, you know we we learned a lot by meeting people at MTSU and and yeah. like starting to play out because you know we played a lot of covers when we started early on. And it was all you know Neil Young and Tom Nirvana. Andrew, Nirvana <laughs> and,
0: you know
4: it. But you know, when we started writing our own songs, it it sort of had this weird thing, and people were like, "Oh, well, you know that that kind of sounds like television, or that kind of sounds like Can, or that kind of sounds like Faust." Or we like, XTC. I know, what mm-hmm. does that mean? You know, so we would start diving into those things and trying to figure out what what these people meant by "Is that a you know Is that a good thing or a bad thing <laughs> that we sound mm-hmm. like that?"
0: Did you and Roger both go to MTSU for like the recording industry program initially? We did. Yeah graduated high school in ninety three and Matt was like, Hey man, I'm gonna think
2: about going to uh Murfreesboro for this uh recording industry management program they have. And uh and so we both went and checked out MTSU and decided to go to MTSU and uh we were there from what, ninety three to the beginning of ninety five, like spring of ninety five I think.
4: Yeah, we didn't make it very long. <laughs>
2: <Yeah>. <laughs>
4: Too much like we we lived we lived at the dorm that was right next to Domino's Pizza. Mm, yep. And uh, we would eat, you know, like thin crust Domino's every night, <laughs> and uh, buy like natty ice. Yeah. So we had like it 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 was a bad combination, man. We <laughs> we both gained like forty pounds or something. <laughs> yeah, those
0: pizzas were cheap, man. It was easy to buy those every night for sure.
4: Yeah. So we we. We drank too much beer, ate too much pizza, and then, like, worried too much about, you know, <laughs> shows at the Chameleon Cafe. So, school ended, and, you know, well, basically, Rick Williams, this is where Rick Williams steps in. He's like, hey, you know, you guys pretty good. Let's, uh, let's get you on a sponge bath.
0: Yeah.
4: And we all, just <laughs> we all just sort of blindly quit school and like, okay, man, cool. D- sure. This. Yeah, why wouldn't so, you? <laughs> Why wouldn't you? Yeah. You're,
0: you know, very young kids getting offered a record label deal. Sounds awesome. Yeah,
4: exactly. Exactly. That's exactly. You know, it's funny because Rick actually drove to Sparta. You know, we had just started college and started playing music. And we'd only played in Murfreesboro maybe three or four times. And then it's like, hey, we're going to sign you to a label. So he drives to Sparta, to to my parents' house. And we sit in our living room with my parents, Don's parents, Roger's mom, all the parents and Rick gives this big talk about how, you know, he wants to sign the band and that it's going to be a developmental label <laughs> and, and yeah. all these big things are going to happen. So he's trying to convince everyone that this is a good thing that we should all kind of quit school and start, you know, doing this
1: long time, focusing <laughs> yeah. on music. Full well, time. That's wild. How yeah. how'd that uh how'd that fly with everyone's parents? I've never heard this. Actually, that sounds fun. sounds incredible. I mean, he was a he was a he was a good salesman for sure. Okay, he All was right. man.
4: I, you know, Don's parents were definitely they. You know, Don's parents were always kind of skeptical of it, which you know, rightfully so. Sure. I mean, <laughs> but uh, Don, I think Roger and I at that point had already sort of pretty much flunked out of school anyway. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. This is this is this looks like the road. <laughs> it looks like the road we're going to take and then yeah you know, don i feel like don was that about the time don quit the first time
1: i think so wait don yeah quit? I, I, okay yeah uh, he quit twice yeah he quit twice he okay. quit once yes.
4: early on and then he quit again right after Rollum joined
0: right okay so richard williams of Sponge Bath records convinces you to sign we don't have to go through all of the the details <laughs> of it do the self-titled uh, ep that mm-hmm. that contains uh, a couple of the songs, or at least no, one of the songs, makes it onto the Mahaffey Sessions, yeah, um, mm-hmm. which we'll get into. But then you also do another record, a full record with Richard Dorch, right? I believe that's yeah. like another. Dor- record. Right, but
2: well, we did actually the first thing was with um, what's his name at the Bennett House, uh, Jim Faraci. Yeah, Faraci.
0: Okay, was that a full <clears throat> length yeah, that record? That
2: was the self-titled. Stuff.
0: Okay, that's the so yeah, that's the, the first EP. Stuff was full length oh wow okay
4: but that that was actually we had recorded a full length and we just cut it down to an ep for a release
0: got it and then then the dorch sessions happen and i think the thursday and rabbit march come from that for that 10 inch that came out and so SpongeBath has now released two things from you even though you've probably recorded several things (laughs) yeah and then don quick's Rollam joins the band and you feel more invigorated. Mm -hmm. Like I can totally understand. I'm glossing over a lot of details here, but I can totally understand why you would feel fatigued if you've recorded basically two full records and released an EP and a 10 inch, like that could, that could be tough. Uh, That could could be a hard feeling. So Rollum joins and take me through the process of like, you decide are, are these songs written at that time?
1: No, oh, no, not, not, not when no. I joined, like when, like even at the audition I did, like it was basically me playing through like songs that they had released that I had access to. Yeah. So essentially for me, that was the self-titled EP. Um, I think soaking in the center of the universe was that the name of the comp. Yep. Yep. <laughs> you got it right there. Yeah. So, yep. uh, whichever one has paid to think in engine debris. Yeah. Cause I remember I, I had worked at tower records, and pick that up. Yep. And so I knew those songs and that was basically what I played. And then I remember they threw some, uh, other songs at me. And I, one of them, if memory serves, one of them was circus, which I'd never heard. And then, um, there was another one. I just remember I could like hum it in the mic. I'm not going to do that, but I just remember like (laughs) Matt saying like, do you know, do you know, uh, English beat? And I'd heard like some songs enough to like do it. It's like, yeah, this kind of has that vibe. And, it was that, and then I think one other one that w- that ended up being something we recorded with Carter. Anyway, yeah. I feel like, honestly, like... And this is not disrespect against Don Sergio when I say this, and I promise this sure. isn't some sort of vindictive thing where it's like, Don didn't like me. That's not what I mean by this. But I, I do think that Don quitting, like, it forced everyone to kind of, like, rethink everything. And I had no preconceived notions for any of this. You know, it was like... I was just literally happy to be playing in a band that I liked. Yeah. That, that was it. Yeah. And, and not like, like loved. So I just remember at rehearsals, it was like, I mean, Matt can speak to this obviously better than I can, but like, I'm sure like writing had to change. His approach to guitar had to change. And because Don did like, I like he had a lot of like interesting counter melodies and I think wrote like, I think had a, has a very great melodic brain, honestly. hmm And I know like just us all of a sudden being pared down to this four piece, like everything kind of had to change. And I I think there were growing pains with that a little bit, but trying to remember, I think it was like a lightning 100 thing that we did at third and Lindsley, I think is like this really good snapshot of like where the band was at kind of like pre this, but yeah, I feel like it, it took us honestly like maybe Again, it's hard to get perspective on time with us, but to me, it feels like it took us about like a good like five to six months of consistent working and practice to like get something that was like
0: cohesive and and felt like a group. But, like, so you're you're joining at the end of '98 yeah. and mm-hmm. learning uh, existing catalog of songs, not the full that catalog. Was, but
1: honestly, I feel like me learning that was more like for the audition itself, and then you know once Don quit like i i just i remember it this way but i remember it being one of those things where there was a little bit of like uh what are we going to do mm-hmm. and we actually did audition guitarist for a brief period and i'm trying to mm-hmm. think of how many there were maybe yeah. three that i can fully remember but maybe four even okay. you know, i think there were four Ben slack ben slack philip shouse jim o'shea jim o'shea and then matt burris's brother swan yeah I believe. Swan. yeah Audition? Yeah, Swan Burris. Yeah. Yeah. But I think that was it. Johnny Gates. That, uh, Johnny Gates.
4: Johnny Gates. On, Dude Johnny Gates. Yeah,
1: <laughs> and I remember that because we found out he played saxophone and we yeah, exactly. We were we it was like, oh Roxy music, saxophone. <laughs> what if we had a saxophonist slash guitarist and it's not like honestly all these people were Amazing, like seriously, all yes, of them were amazing. But it was just kind of like once we, we kind of just realized, like, oh, the four of us are good. Yeah, we don't yeah. we don't need a, to be a five piece. Yeah. And yeah,
4: you're exactly right, and that that was the process we went through. It, and and that was the thing is I feel like, however many, however long that period was, you know, you said four or five months, something like that. Mm-hmm. However long that was of us trying people out, it, and it was it was totally worth it because <laughs> it was a lot of fun, but. I feel like in the end, it, it ultimately was just the four piece that worked the mm-hmm. best, and and we were. I think in the beginning, we were just afraid of that. Yeah, you know, we are. We were intimidated, or maybe thinking that you know we're not good enough to just be a four piece. Mm-hmm. So I think when we decided, you know what, let's just let's just do this. That's when we started writing for that and sort of taking you know all this. These new influences and these new ideas, and making just trying to make it happen, which I feel like, you know, for these recordings, I think it turned out pretty good. <laughs>
0: yeah. It's, I don't know. It, yeah. is, it is what it is. It's good. What is the writing process like in the band at that time? Now, I know it evolves a lot over the course of the band. Like, 1999 feature songs being written probably are not written in the same way that 2014 songs. Yeah. I mean, but... fr-
1: from my memory, it's just literally like the, the spark is pretty much hundred percent of the time, Matt. Yeah. With, with the ideas and, and the song and it's one of, it, but when it came to arranging and working on ideas and, a, and, you know, subtleties of parts or whatever, I always personally felt like it was a very group effort. Nice. Yeah. Across the board, you know, great but no song song uh, pretty much 100 percent of the time starts with matt
0: nice excellent so that's uh that's a good segue into talking about how let's go through each of these songs now this may not be the chronological order in which they were written obviously because we've got some older songs in here but i would be curious to hear just starting from the top of the record you know how what the initial spark for the song was and then how it was arranged and maybe even how it changed over the course of its time and then we'll get to like you know what happens to the record at at the end of talking through all these but we can just start with serious Um, if you remember anything, I think,
4: Well, the thing I remember about Sirius, just a couple things, is one that it was, it was like it, it was a riff that dun 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 dun-dun-dun-dun, dun 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 the chords basically, and sort of this idea of how the riff would go. And we had been m- messing around with that in the practice space for a little while, and and it sort of had this cars vibe, which was we thought was kind of cool because it, it like, you know, it's kind of real like, loud and open, in it and like tightened up into this sort of cars type yeah. feel, and we liked that. Sure, but if we only had like the intro verse, intro verse, and we were like, eh, who? And, and this is kind of what we did a lot, Because we would be like, yeah, let's <laughs> let's just make some noise in the middle. So that, the bri- that becomes the bridge. It's just like, eh, let's just make some noise. So we, we just do like noise, rock, whatever you want to call it. I don't know, just a bunch of crap in the middle. And then we just <laughs> zip, out <of> <laughs> zip out of that into another chorus, and we're done. So that's one thing I remember about it. And the other thing was in, in like the lyrics – the uh, it's just it's like it's just you know, nonsensical, just like stupidity, basically. But the second verse, I remember basically just lifting that completely from a Brian Eno song.
1: Is it all come running? Where, yeah, I'll come running, yeah, yeah. No. So, like, I'll come running to tie your shoes.
4: So, you know, I always really like that line. There's like certain lines from certain songs, I'm like, ah, that's just freaking awesome, you know. So, I that was one of them, and I was like, I'm gonna use that. So, I just basically took, you know, I'll tie your shoes from Brian Eno. You know, and then, but, you know, and I, I do think I should preface this. This, this, all these songs we should preface with at this time, we were, <laughs> we were really, our I specifically. And a part of this was because Rollam had introduced me to this stuff. It's kind of like the Camper Van Beethoven. I'm, I'm sorry to like, like no, get no, off.
0: totally fine.
4: But there were things about Camper Van Beethoven that I feel like always stuck with the features. When when Rollum joined the band, and we were re- driving in his little uh, Toyota Tercel, that's like it. a white Toyota, right?
1: Yeah, yeah.
4: And he, he he puts in Roxy Music's first record. I never, I'd never heard, I'd never heard anything from Roxy Music. Well, I had heard a little bit of uh, Virginia playing, but he plays remake, remodel, and to me, remake, remodel is that to me that song is one of those like life-changing songs. When I heard it, it just absolutely just like blew, blew my world apart. You know, it was just like crazy good and just like, oh man, this is just amazing. So what I was getting at is that I feel like all these songs during this time, in my mind, were sort of influenced by that first, a lot, a lot by that first Roxy Music record. The approach that we took, on like that I took specifically on you know, whether it was lyrics or vocals or mm. whatever. yeah, you know, I, I didn't I'm not saying I captured that. I'm just saying that that was like imprinted in my mind when we were doing a lot of this. You know, it yeah. it was sort of that we were into that type of thing at that time. but anyway, that's serious. That's what I remember from serious.
2: and I wanted to say something to you about serious. Like wasn't in serious when you were talking about the noise part? Didn't you guys, like,
1: Rollin, didn't you guys break down the drums and go upstairs to to get
2: that,
3: like,
1: open sound? Yeah, there was, like, yeah, there was a a weird, like, (laughs) record, like, I think it was, like, in a tile room or something he had upstairs. Do you remember where the room where that piano was at? There was something like that,
0: for sure. Yeah. but I guess I skipped a step here, and I don't know how you got to record with Matt Mahaffey. I totally (laughs) skipped a step talked about how the band came together and how these songs are starting to be written, and I don't even know how that happened. I'm I'm not qualified to answer that beyond the... (laughs) You know
4: what, man? I don't know either.
1: Matt (laughs) (laughs) told us
4: to, like, screw off. He should have just been like, screw you guys. I'm not recording you. Forget it. I'm never going to get paid. (laughs) Nothing (laughs) good is ever going to come from this. But for whatever reason... You know what? I know what the reason is. Matt Mahaffey is a good dude. And he was like,
2: I'm going to record these guys because... Somebody's got to. They won't. They'll just always. <laughs> well, it was like right around this same time period was right when SpongeBob started to decline. Right, they were yeah. starting to close up shop, and
1: well, they had got the. Sorry to interrupt, but they didn't. They kind of get the Katie's, the deal with Electra around that point. Yes, too though. I think, so, yeah. and I think that was. But you're right, Raj. I think that this was kind of like on on the tail end. Yeah, and I think Mahappy was
2: kind of tied up as well as we were with the um, zoo and SpongeBath, like
3: mm-hmm.
2: uh, the contract. And so they, they had reached contract. And so uh, I think Mahappy was looking for something to do, and we were looking for a way to record. And yeah. Uh, so, yeah, absolutely. Matt was just a good dude about it. and
0: self record Breakfast with Girls, which is on DreamWorks, came out in 1999. So, 99. I mean. Interesting to hear from. Maybe I'll call Matt uh, Mahaffey and find out what was going on from his perspective. But I'm sure they worked very hard on that in '98, and it's being released in '99. So maybe he had free time, but probably not because they toured. Interesting. I mean, he he definitely was around. Yeah, and I,
1: I he definitely was like present for that.
0: So the Mahaffey sessions are, are actually recorded at Matt Mahaffey's house Correct. They, in Murfreesboro. He,
1: he had like a proper studio in his basement. Yes. Yeah. Like it was, it was an actual, like in my brain anyway, it's like about like as nice as home studios get. Yeah, And he, I mean, Jesus, I, I could, we could all go on about how brilliant he is, but it's one of those things where like thinking about it, like even him at that age, the abilities he had and just knowledge he had of engineering, he, he's, he's probably the closest, closest person I've ever met to a musical polymath in my life. Wow. Like ever. Yeah. I've, I've played with a lot of people. I don't, I don't think I've ever quite met anyone like Mahaffey in terms of like, you can throw him in any situation on anything, any right. instrument, recording, producing, whatever it is. And right. he's going to be superb at whatever you
0: put him on. So know. it's a good thing that he wanted to record you.
1: Yeah, I think so. Yeah, for sure. I th- Absolutely. I think. I think he really gave, like, cohesion to, to a lot of this, for sure.
0: Yeah. You know? So you're at his house. Do these songs all exist in in a pretty finished form prior yeah, yeah, to going in? Yeah,
1: very much so. Like, um, we, there were flourishes that he put on these recordings in particular to so say, like... I, I mean, I could go across the board here. Say on Sirius, there's, like, background vocals that he put in there that weren't there before... There's, like, little kind of, like, I, I would say, like, arrangement flourishes that he maybe put in. Say, like, the uh, there's a keyboard part that that goes through the first verse. That mm-hmm. Like, I'm sure it was his idea to hire a string player and double that with strings. Right. And come up with an arrangement for that.
0: Interesting. So, Matt, do you have any specific uh, memories of how you got into recording with Mahaffey? Or was it just sort of a SpongeBath thing where, like, self is sort of the you know, the primo artist on the label, so they hooked you up? Man,
4: I if I were going to guess, I, I really don't remember, but if I were going to guess, I would say that Rory mm. had something to do with it. And and Rory probably approached Matt and offered him something, you know, I, who knows what it was. Sure. Who knows what Rory offered Matt to say, hey, man, will you, you record these guys? And Matt was... <laughs> Matt was probably like, dude, there's no way I'm recording these guys. And Rory was like, man, I'll give you this. But I don't know what that thing <laughs> was.
0: <laughs>
4: but it was something. And and that's that's how we ended up recording with Matt. Rory offered Matt something. What, I don't know. What oh,
0: I love it. I love the mystery involved with that. Uh, yeah. Rory is the band's manager for anyone listening that doesn't uh, have the context there. And I'm going to definitely contact him and find out how they, how he made that happen. And if he made good on that promise.
4: Yeah. 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 Who knows about that? Yeah. But you know, Matt, Matt decided he was going to let us come in and we like, I don't, man, I don't even know how long it seems like we were there for months, like kind of off and on.
3: Yeah. Mm-hmm. Cause
4: his studio was in his basement. I remember tracking the drums. I remember me tracking guitars and vocals. I don't much remember keyboards or bass, I kind of feel like we were just all in and out based on who needed to do something. And
0: so it wasn't like a live band uh, scenario yeah. where like everybody in there mm-hmm. for a week concentrated, it, it was, was a it long was literally, process.
1: yeah, it was literally drums to a click without accompaniment where it was just, yeah. cause I knew the arrangements. Yeah. It was just like, okay, I'll yeah. just do that. And then, and, and
4: that's what Matt was set up for at the time. He wasn't set up for a live band. So that's how we approached it. Interesting.
0: Is that how you generally recorded? No, it? In- no, the polar opposite of that
1: would be, uh, say, the beginning EP. Yeah. Where, like, that was literally us live in Brian Carter's living room. Right. Like, literally in the exact same room together, like, all of us. Yeah. We're in the same room. Not vocals live, obviously. Right. But, like, doing, like, I just remember, like, Roger being right here. Yeah. And then, you know, Matt being right there and Parrish being right there when we did the beginning EP. Same. So, yeah. And, and I think it, it you feel that in records. I could, I could be wrong about that. No, you but, totally but do. But I, I think you can kind of hear this and tell that, like, that's not bad or good, but it's like you can tell that, like, this was a thing that was <laughs> tracked. And I don't want to say gritted because it's not that, but it was like it it has a stiffer Feel I right. Think, compared to something like beginning where things like we didn't do that to a click at all. And it kind of you know, sure. has a human it has flow that, to that it.
0: natural sort of band playing together. Yeah. Feel.
1: Yeah. And sounds like Brian Carter's living room because that's
0: what you're hearing. OK, so you're in the studio with Mahaffey, but it's very piecemeal and it's kind of a longer process, possibly possibly months of just coming mm-hmm. in on off time and recording different pieces of it. Interesting that it's not more like band collaborative as it would be later in the band's career. Like, do you feel like you mm-hmm. maybe took something from this where you were like, "That's not the way we want to record music," or was that just like the situation?
1: I mean, I, for me personally, it was just more like grateful to be in a situation where someone's recording us. Yeah, and and I yeah. I didn't think about it beyond that.
0: Well, no, just, I mean, on reflection,
1: on on reflection, I mean, I for me for me i i like both ways yeah in both processes mm-hmm. and and i think there's value to both i mentioned this uh earlier but like i personally favor the beginning ep more than this yeah. you know and and do like that approach but then we've also done things that are a lot i don't know yeah i don't, really not giving a defined answer here
0: no either. you're giving a fine answer you like both and yeah, both yeah, have I, advantages yeah for I re- sure i really do and like the beginning both. ep is gorgeous yeah it I, think it, I think it's fantastic
1: it really captures something that i think is i uh, agree yeah it's, yes it's-
0: a hundred percent. I think there's also some, well, we don't have to get into it, but I mean, it it, it feels very personal. Mm-hmm. Like I feel like just from my own reflection on the features as a band, the original EP and even the Thursday 10 inch, they sound great and they capture a very cool sounding band. But the Mahaffey sessions to me are this like maturing of the band. Like I, these I, songs are more I, mature. Yes, I get that. And then I think the beginning is like, Another evolution from this. Even though the world didn't hear this, Mm -hmm. I do feel like you kind of – you skipped this huge chunk where, like, you put out the EP and you put out the 10-inch and then people saw you live, but there wasn't anything recorded. And then all of a sudden you come out with the beginning and it's a very mature record. And maybe it was because you had the Mahaffey sessions too mature within this process, but the beginning is, like – fantastically mature and maybe Matt it might have been because you were writing songs about having kids and (laughs) being terrified of that but that to me it always struck me how like oh shit this is this is grown up this is some grown up shit (laughs) anyway getting back to the Mahaffey sessions anything else you remember about Sirius in terms of the writing process or the recording process
4: one thing I will say is you know so the beginning of of Sirius comes in there's that heavy you know we're we're playing as a band and then there's this like really cool keyboard part that goes over the top of that
3: Oh,
1: that's that melody yeah yeah that's that's all matt
4: mahaffey yes right there. it is
1: yeah mm-hmm. yeah
4: and uh, another another thing that i thought was really cool the Matt edge of the song which yeah, i was always a big and still am an elo fan so he knew that and he was like you know if you want some of these harmonies you know we can throw this in throw that in and so like this the, the harmonies were adding some of this stuff was like you know matt saying here's how you can accomplish that and the guitar part at the end which i always thought was really cool the little harmonies that's matt as well so matt was Matt matt is unbelievable at like embellishing <laughs> and uh, he's like here you go here's these little things and you should try this and try that and you know we, we tried some of this stuff and it, and it worked great and some of it didn't work as well some songs you know but Right. It, some of it, I just like like well. Just for example, with Sirius, I think that little guitar part at the end is really awesome. The little harmonies, that... it, it's it's cool. And that's all Matt Mahaffy.
0: That's all his uh, suggestions right there. Did you carry that into playing that live as well?
4: No. It's one of those things where it's like you know, I, I would like learn to play it, and I would play it for the recording, and then I would never take the time to learn it again to play it live. Just <laughs> so mm, whatever.
0: Yeah. Well, that makes I really the recording special. I like I really it. I need the details. <laughs> All right, well, let's move on to Carrie Ann. Mm-hmm. Anything that you remember about the writing of it, and uh, the arrangement of it, and the recording of it? It's my
1: favorite keyboard part, Parish ever wrote.
0: Yeah, I'll
1: say that. I think that keyboard part's fantastic. Amongst the amazing Roger Dabb's basslines, which there are too many to name, uh, it, it. If I'm just making an arbitrary list, I'll just say it's in my top five. Yeah. Thanks for
2: being here. Thanks. I don't know what to say to that. Then just,
4: thanks. Yeah, I agree, man. I think this was, like, I think Carry In was kind of the start of the new band. You know, when we came up mm-hmm. with the song and, and started playing it, it was like, man, this, I feel like we had really, we're on something. And and I feel like it was a, a blueprint for how we, we moved forward. Carry In Carrie was like, it was always really good live well i could sing it pretty well and it it always translated well and it was kind of like okay if we can make every song as good as carry and we're doing pretty good
0: mm-hmm. was this written and that,
4: that's kind of how i look at it
0: was this written earlier in the like in the four piece process or later it, it was in the it four was, piece
4: process yeah. yeah yeah and you know what's funny is we did an early version of carry Ann with matt mahathy we did a demo with of Carrie Anne with Matt Mahaffey, and it somehow it leaked out onto some kind of Murfreesboro <laughs> compilation. As, as they do, yeah, and it I think it circulated, and it it was sort of like a you know I don't know it was a thing for a few minutes. Yeah, it was well and received. It, I, I feel like
2: yeah, it was. I mean, Carrie, I I still like Carrie Anne to me holds up. Yeah, I think it it holds oh, up for sure. Yeah, it was, uh, I remember, because you and Rollin were living together, I remember I, I used to come over to you guys' place, and we would kind of just set up kind of acoustic. And I remember early on, like, Exercising Demons being one song, one of those songs, and Carrie Ann, they were both kind of like right around the same time period. And we would just set up kind of acoustic and just kind of work through stuff. What you, Did you say Exercising Demons? Yeah.
4: Yeah, I think those two were both kind of, we kind of, finished those the same week yeah <laughs> and uh one of the, you know one of the things i just thought of about Carrie Ann, which is kind of funny it's sort of like this pink you know, like one of those like pink floyd wizard of oz things where it's like we were real i was you know the the roxy music thing was going on and i just happened to use the name Carrie Ann for the title and and for the name of the song and then Rollin was like hey man did you you know the the girl on the cover of the first roxy music album her name's Carrie Ann. we should spell it the way that Whoa. her name was spelled for the liner notes in the first Roxy Music record. So that's why Carrie Ann is spelled the way it is and not, you know, C A R R I E A N N. It's it's spelled that way specifically because the 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 lady on the cover of Roxy Music's first album is Carrie Ann.
0: That's how her name is spelled. Wow. That's some fun. Yeah. random random factoid. That's a fun trivia. <laughs> yeah, I love that. Yeah. Was there anything about the lyrics that you can tell us about on this one? In particular, um,
4: man, not really. I always really like the line. I've heard of seven wonders and I've ate sliced bread, but nothing else compares to my career. <laughs> yeah, I'm, yeah. So it's a good I'm st- I still like that line. Yeah,
0: you yeah, should. Yeah. It's fantastic. That,
4: I mean, and, and that may have that may have been like the first line I was ever like really proud of. You know, like eh, this is pretty good. That might be the only line I've ever pressed.
0: <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I've always wondered what some of the inspiration for this stuff was, and I don't know how, I don't even know if you remember anything, but I've, I've got a funny feeling and I've got a funny walk. I always thought, well, who? what is the funny walk? Where does that come from? But I, I don't even really want to know, but I just, I've always loved that line as well. It's just a nice self-observation. All right, so next is Armani Suede. This is one of the uh, one of the songs that had been previously released and was from the previous iteration of the band. And I think it's like I don't know, maybe this is my own personal experience with the band, but like this was like the song that people knew from the features yeah, in I the early so. in the early iteration it was like that that drum, the way the drums start is just like, oh, yeah. Here we go. This is Armani Suede. How did the band sort of approach this once you had become this new version of it? Like,
1: I mean, I, I never really deviated from what Jason Taylor did on that song. To be real, like yeah. I, I thought what he did on that song was perfect. Like, so yeah, I yeah. just I I played it as it laid for me personally. Yeah, yeah,
4: yeah. I mean, basically, I remember when we tracked this with Mahaffey. We pretty much tried to capture what we had done with Ferracci, but in just enhance it. I, I'll say this I, when we did it the first time with, with Farachi, we were this was like a just an idea I had had, and we were in the studio. It's like, oh, let's try this song. We started playing it, it was pretty cool. And then Roger starts playing this bass line, it's like a disco bass, like boom, 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 octaves. Do, 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 do. And I'm like, dude, what? What the hell are you playing? And I was so disgusted by it. It was just what is this? And everybody else, everybody else but me is like, "Man, that's freaking awesome." And I I don't know. It turns out Raj is he's just he's amazing. He's a badass. Yep. He knew exactly what the song needed. He put it in there and it like, you know, that it is what it is. It's like I, I don't know. At, at first, though, I thought it was ridiculous. This was like 90, 95, maybe? Yeah, it
0: had to be really early. Ron, yeah, because we, and, you know, like, yeah. like
4: think about what's going on with music at that time. And Roger's putting this like little octave disco bass in the song. And I'm like, dude, this is not cool. This is not good.
2: <laughs> but, I remember that. Yeah, we were we were recording yeah. the song. We You know, we were we were practicing because we, we were in the studio and we were – throwing in this new song we hadn't even played before so we're in the studio rehearsing this song and i remember matt yeah he just did not like the <laughs> disco bass at all and he was like dude what do you what do you play something else and uh, play raunchy and, uh, and, and i think he tried to play yeah
4: play rock for me dude come on <laughs> <laughs> but it that's that's what i remember most of our money suede and we tried to capture like my guitar on the original recording is a little bit out of tune we tried to get my guitar a little out of tune oh interesting just right for the Mahaffey thing yeah and you know it's like that's what we did we tried to pretty much do that and we and we tried to add a little bit of ELO to it as well with the vocals <laughs> we might have went a little overboard with it but
0: so this is one of the tracks that you you don't feel you don't feel as compelled by listening back to it.
4: Um, I feel like Armani suede out of those tracks fits more than some of the other ones. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like it, it, it doesn't bug me as much.
0: Anything else on Armani suede?
2: Well, I just wanted to yeah interject to, yeah. like one, one thing that I I remember us trying to do, or my happy trying to do was because of the first Ferraci session, because I guess I don't even remember why we did it, but there was like, the drum machine and I guess it was to kind of like help Jason like I don't remember why we did that but anyways like I, I do remember like happy finding the sample of that same drum machine so it would even like sound the same oh wow as the original uh, drum machine that Farachi used but and I just also wanted to say yeah, yeah, yeah both to like, Matt and Ron, like you guys are <laughs> sweet like
0: with the accolades like thank you <laughs> well he he did say that he hated it yeah. so he did you're... yeah dude come yeah, on yeah he dude. did a, he did start off by saying i hated it <laughs> just kidding obviously you're, you're crushing it uh let's talk about see you through any memories
4: um i remember this song we played it for a long time live and but had this sort of flapping thing during the chorus
3: yeah
4: and and when we were playing live that was always a big thing people really liked that it, it, it had a chorus it had you know the, the i will see you through line was there the verses it it never had and this this is was a trend throughout the history of the features but we would. We would start new songs. I can't say we would write new songs because we would start new songs. I would bring an idea, chords in. We would start playing them, and then we would play them live, and there would never be any lyrics. So I would just mumble stuff. It, it would be for months, for years with some songs, oh, really? and see you through. Was, yeah, I would just <laughs> mumble. Stuff.
1: Didn't Circus like never have a lyric on the second verse going into the chorus? Now, like never. the tail it end, it's just... like, I've got no feelings, <laughs> but I've got, uh, uh, uh. <laughs> Yeah. It's just,
4: I never came with a line. It's just like, eh, whatever. And, and see you through was one of those tunes too, where I mumbled and mumbled and mumbled and the chorus was there and everybody loved it. And it's like, oh crap, how am I going to write lyrics that actually fit in this and work? So I always just kind of disregarded the song because I, I never thought I could like make it what it should be. And. Never any lyrics because it was never possible to to fill in all those blanks with the correct you know syllables, the correct rhymes that I felt like should be there. Yeah. So it it was just a really <laughs> awkward thing for me. And see you through was one of those songs.
0: So when you had uh, to record the vocals at, at at in the Mahaffey sessions, you really like oh man. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Wild! I never knew that, and I didn't know that it happened mm-hmm. on so many songs. Yeah. That's very entertaining.
4: Yeah, man. If you, yeah, if if there like there's live features recordings out there, I'm sure knowing that, if you go and listen to them, you're like, oh, what the what the hell is he saying? He's saying absolutely nothing, just a bunch of like, you know, <laughs> gibberish,
2: <laughs> gibber jab. <laughs> didn't we learn at one time that Michael Stipe actually kind of did the same thing earlier? Well, on? I think I
4: feel like a lot of guys, I think a lot do of people
2: that, do, yeah, a lot yeah. Of,
4: Yeah, you know, like I've seen, I've kind of watched, I saw a documentary once on how, you know, on the Rolling Stones, and it seemed like Jagger kind of did the same thing. He just sort of, he just sort of like make noises and kind of, you know, have ideas of patterns of how things would go. But I think most people are a little more maybe disciplined in like finishing that (laughs) than I was.
0: So. So how do you feel about it now? Are you just, you like the song, but m- maybe not the lyrics?
4: Uh, you know, and that's the way I feel with most, most features. You know, I, I have this thing to where, to me, the best part of the features is anything beyond the lyrics and sort of what I did. I, I really feel like the other guys sort of created this, like, if I had just been able to match sort of the thing they were doing, it it would have been phenomenal. But I feel like in some to some degree i just would never would lyrically and like instrumentally i was just never really able to like match
1: what the rest of the band was was doing i'm gonna i'm gonna disagree so, with that but, sure. but, <laughs> but okay i'm totally gonna disagree with that
4: yeah but, okay. but, i mean but, man, to, yeah. well you're entitled to your opinion man <laughs>
1: <laughs> and that's just like your opinion man you know <laughs> yeah. yeah i don't I know i i
0: well, that's a very huge yeah. sign of respect yeah, yeah. that that you it feel is. that way. and I I, and
4: I, and I have a I have a great deal of respect for those guys. They're they're super. I mean, just phenomenal musicians, and they always played what was right for the songs. You know,
0: right. And I'm sure it's it good. is mutual. Absolutely. Yeah.
1: yeah absolutely. It very much is yes. mutual. Yeah. yeah.
0: Well, another fun tidbit on that with the mumbling. Loved that. Anything else before we move on? Mm-hmm. All right. Mm-hmm. Exercising demons. Let's talk about this. This is also like a wildly favorite live song for sure.
1: I I remember me me and Matt uh, worked at the auto auction, the The Tennessee auto auction in Murfreesboro and My only thing, my only memory of that song is literally coming home. Like we pro I think our one requirement was we had to be there on Tuesdays or whatever, but like, I just remember auction day. Yeah, exactly. And then the rest of it was just like, ah, show up whenever you want. But I remember, um, like coming home on a day, Matt didn't work if memory serves. And I just remember this song being done, like actually like Mm. complete, complete lyrics everything arrangement like everything mm. and we had a drum kit yeah. set up in the living room and i just remember we just started jamming on it and and kind of worked well wow. worked out the things or whatever but yeah that's my memory of that of that song in in terms of my approach to it or whatever yeah or, yeah that's wild and it's it's maybe the only feature song i can think where that was the situation where it was like literally like <laughs> all the lyrics are done the arrangements here just fill it in.
3: Yeah,
0: yeah. What were yeah. you doing, Matt, during the auction?
4: problem just talking about that made me think of this this uh, little gas station across from Digital Planet in Murfreesboro that always had two for one lucky strikes. Mm-hmm. So Ron and I worked the that we worked the absolute minimum that we could at the auto auction <laughs> just to get enough money to buy luck two for one lucky strikes. So you could buy a two for two packs for like, oh, yeah. like three bucks. Mm-hmm. We would and we would get those. Was probably at home smoking Lucky Strikes, two packs, working on this song. I, I'm really surprised Rollin went to work that day. Yeah, me if too. I didn't to work. Yeah, I, I never went to work. <laughs> me too. Maybe he's like mistaken. Maybe <laughs> I think he was actually sleeping, and he woke up from a nap, and he was it, like, it, "I had you you all this work? progress." It's yeah, he f- thought he was. It's
1: uh, all this is fifty-fifty. <laughs> it could go either way for sure. <laughs>
4: But yeah, I don't know. I don't know what I was doing. It, it it sure wasn't anything, you know, worthwhile. But
2: I remember coming over that week. That that was what I was saying earlier. Is I'm pretty sure yeah. it was the same week when I came over you guys had carrying in and exercising demons and we kind of just jammed in the, the living room there. Yeah. So
4: you know, an interesting thing, we're just talking about dumb stuff, dude, but you know, there's something interesting about to me about the house that Roland and I lived <laughs> in <laughs> is that it was owned by lee roberts and he's the owner of the borough bar and grill Yeah, oh, you know yeah yeah so he owned the borough and he would come over and we would be in there you know playing music or whatever he would be outside mowing the yard and it, it was a it was a, i'm not gonna go into all that but it was a really weird situation
1: do you, you mean because of- lee roberts is part demon <laughs> is that why it's weird yeah <laughs> maybe okay maybe what it is and we were like
4: really scared of that guy yeah he was just crazy but uh, dude anyway That's Murfreesboro idea. Ties you
0: Murfreesboro you know, was full of characters it was full of characters man and full of good deals I remember the two for one on Lucky Strikes
4: all CDs were a dollar off too I don't know if you remember that <laughs> they're in ABC's
0: too
1: <laughs> cassettes are two dollars <laughs> off everything's in ABC's
0: is <laughs> <CD's> one dollar <laughs> off <laughs> uh anything else about this song i mean it seems like uh i mean i I, every time i've seen you play this song live every single time the audience just lost their minds i mean
1: demons out of all of these songs demons is the one song that stayed with us throughout our entire like us as a group we never ever ever stopped playing demons ever yeah, that's true. Like, yeah. near, nearly probably every show, now that I'm thinking about it. Like, Demons is just one of those songs that existed with us, you know? Yeah.
0: Yeah. When I was uh, asking Matt for what the sequence was for this album, which I'm sure maybe at some point that was heavily discussed, what is the sequence for the Mahaffey Sessions, mm-hmm. I assumed that this would start the record. I love the sequence. I'm extremely happy with the sequence. I think it's fantastic. But I think I'd seen so many shows in Murfreesboro where this was the first song that opened the set. Yeah. That I just assumed, Mm. oh, it'll open the album for sure. But it's an awesome way to end side A of the record. It's great. You exercise the demons, you're done with side A. Yep. You did it. All right. uh, Ready to move on? Let's move on. All right. Sure. Moving on to 33 and a third. Starting off side B here. What can you remember about writing this and arranging this and recording this?
4: So this is the first song where I'm kind of like, you know, this is this is an older tune. This was done like more like Armani Suede. It was an earlier feature song. When Rollam joined the band, we we sort of tried to update it mm. into something that we felt was a little more what we were doing at the time. I don't it, it was always really it was tough, you know. I think people enjoyed the song and liked the song, but I don't I don't know that I don't know that it was ever really one of my favorites. I don't know. Interesting. To me, it doesn't really hold up as well as, as a lot of the other ones, but it's a, that's how I feel about it.
0: Fascinating. Do you remember this song coming into the band? And
1: um, I, I remember hearing it live when I used to go see him, yeah, and I, I personally always liked it quite a bit.
0: I love this song. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's all subjective, so. It, it's totally fine. Mm-hmm. But I always, I thought this song was, uh, I don't know, it's really sweet. And it's uh, a, yeah. you know, it's a, I think it's an easy song to sort of connect with because it has such a, a, a very simple metaphor of like record yeah, shopping great. and yeah. loving music and mm-hmm. falling in love. And, you know, I always, I always, always appreciated yeah. that about it.
4: Well, you know, I will say this. I do think it, it was the f- sort of the first song where it was intentional that we, we sort of put an 80s influence on. And, you know, this was like 90, maybe 95, 96, that we we started playing 33 and a third. Oh, wow. And and it was an intentional 80s. And, you know, it, I think right around that same time, and if you listen to 33 and a third, you're like, ah, oh, what's with you? We played a show with Modern English at the exit in. We opened for Modern English.
3: And
0: so and, it, has I it think it, that. Did wait? Did you pull the the melt with you influence Probably, from that? That's what
4: I was getting at. Okay. Yeah, you know, it's kind of like yeah, you know, this. Yeah, I think we did that show with Modern English. It's like you know what? Let's let's kind of like let's take with this and like run with it a little bit. I think that's kind of where that where that started.
0: Rom, did you have any? changes to this, if this predates you like yeah,
1: a, li- a little bit but i pretty much kept it mostly the same i think 33 and a third is one of those songs that went through like some weird arrangement things and i know like the pre-chorus on this particular version has this weird motown thing to it which i'm not sure where that came from but i'll tell you
4: where that came from it came from bell and sebastian like, oh, okay. really early on oh, okay yeah yeah and sort of listening listen to them, like dirty uh, Dream number two sinister. and stuff like that and if it, it, well it was you know I, the thing was is you know rick strangely enough the sponge bath started having dealings with the enclave mm-hmm. right yeah
1: do you remember that michael that was I seymour did. stein's subsidiary right am i remembering that yeah right?
4: yeah. Okay. yeah and i don't remember what the relation was i don't know if it was self Maybe it was self, but there was some kind of thing going on with the Enclave, and the Enclave was the first band to sign in the U.S., Bell and Sebastian. So they had sent all this Bell and Sebastian promo stuff to Sponge Bath, and Rick was like, hey, you should check this record out. Maybe you would like it. And it was like hm. books and all this different Bell and Sebastian stuff, and I got my hands on all of it, and I, I just loved it. I yeah. fell in love with Bell and Sebastian at that time and i think that i mean oh well, i know i don't think that's exactly where that sort of like motown thing came from it was like okay th- this is really nice i like this and we just sort of added it into that section of the song because of you know something off of it, if you're feeling sinister inspiring that
0: i like it something positive from the <laughs> sponge bath influence it's good yeah <laughs>
4: Well, I mean, there's a lot, man. You know, uh Andy McClennan oh, yeah. he like you know, he, he was always pushing always pushing bands in, in a good way, you know. And, and I think he was he's the first person that introduced me to the Kinks. Um oh, you well. know, he's like, Here's the village green preservation society, you need to like check this out. And I would and and then uh And Andy Codowitz. Codowitz, you know, I think, uh, yep. Yeah, I don't think Andy's with us anymore, but Andy, yeah. I remember Andy made a mixtape for me. And, uh, you know, it, it had like the feelies on it and just like mercury red and stuff I would never heard before. And she's like, oh, oh, modern, it had the Modern Lovers on it. That was the first time I'd ever heard the Modern yeah. Lovers was from Andy Kotowitz and, and Brian Botcher as well. Yeah. He would play me stuff and it would just be like, God, dude, this is amazing. So I yeah, there's a lot of uh, a lot of influence came from SpongeBath, and a lot of great people worked there.
0: I love it, uh, Roger. Any memories of thirty three and a third? You want to throw in? You know, one of the things that I was always a fan of is like what
2: Matt said with like the uh, the eighties vibe, like where the sixteenths. Like yep. I just always love the sixteenth hi hats, and but it, it you know, um, as far as like I you know I don't I remember you know there being the uh, the three songs EP thing or whatever that was in, uh, that Sponge bath put out. Like, I think it was the very first thing that had like Armani suede. I'm pretty sure 33 and a third was on that. Oh. It was a tape. You remember the cassette tape? It was like a three song cassette tape.
0: Wow. No, I don't remember that at
2: all. Crazy. Um, yeah. And I'm, I think 33 and a third was on that. And it's Armani
0: suede and maybe smooth. So was that rec- from a prior recording from like the original sessions?
2: Yeah. I think it was from the Ferocci session stuff. Huh. Like we, Yeah, it was really weird we did two things with Farachi. we we went in and did like the first half of a record like Mm -hmm. six songs and then we went back and finished it up later on like months later and so a lot of those songs kind of got used on different things like there was i think at one time too there was actually a a release from sponge bath where it was like a a two song uh like six inch two or whatever that had smooth and wow and something else on it as well I remember doing the, you remember uh, James Robbins? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I remember he and Matt worked on like some cover stuff at one time. It was kind of like a, a double-sided cover. So it had, pretty sure it had smooth. And what was the other song, Matt? Uh, man, I don't remember what the other song was for that. Did we I'm did, sure. did SpongeBath <laughs> ever even release that 6 times? We did, didn't we?
4: I don't think so. I think it was, we just sort of worked
1: up the,
2: yeah. well, I'm not really sure, dude. I thought I that, know, to, to, my,
1: to my knowledge, as a uh, fan prior to me joining, the only releases that I remember were uh, that were official were the uh, Soaking in the Center of the Universe compilations and then uh, the EP. I think yeah. those were the only actual official releases.
0: And then, So does the Thursday 10-inch come out while you're in the band? It
1: comes out when I'm in the band and I'm credited on it, but I did not play on that, actually. Yeah. So, yeah.
0: Well, kudos. Yeah.
1: <laughs> Snug my way <laughs> in there. <laughs> So that was uh, that was actually done
2: with Dorch. So, yeah, yeah, that was the Dorch stuff. Thursday and... Uh,
0: right, right. Uh, Rabbit March, right.
2: Rabbit March. Rabbit March.
0: Rabbit March. Yeah. Uh, I don't know if I just drank the Rory Daigle Kool-Aid or not, but 33 and a third always <laughs> struck me as like, oh, this is... When this song is released,
1: what the hell did Rory? Sorry to interrupt, but what the hell did Rory tell you about thirty three and a third? That I just remember large? him like
0: playing this song and being like, "This is th- this is the song that's gonna break the features." Okay, I mean it didn't release. It was it eventually, I think, was a B side on one of the Universal singles, maybe, maybe so. Um, but like, this song was like impressed upon me, you know, and I was like nineteen, twenty when I was at SpongeBath.
1: Bath. I. I, I like it too, Michael. Yeah.
0: yeah. I think it's a phenomenal uh, yeah, song. I love I've I always love really yeah. loved the song. I do too. Um, yeah. And I, you know, I believed Rory on it and I still believe, Rory's still on believe it. Rory on it. I still do.
4: <laughs> <laughs> well, that's your first mistake.
0: <laughs> <laughs> All right, we'll move on. Let's, let's talk about dark room now. Um. What do you remember about writing and arranging a darkroom? So
1: I I have a vague memory that may or may not be correct with this, but this goes back to me and Matt working at the auto auction. So <laughs> what what would happen is like you go through the auction block and it'd be like typical crap, like seventy five, seventy five, hundred, hundred, whatever. <laughs> then you drive the cars to the dealerships that bought them, right? right? So me and Matt were in, like, Bell Road, Hickory Hollow area. And do you know the hot chocolate song, Everyone's a Winner? Yeah. So it's like this... I remember, like, driving, and I happened to have the radio on, and then Matt pulled up next to me and the car, rolled down the window, it was like, dude, dude! And he was, like, blasting the same song. Wow. And it was just like, this is, like, killer. <laughs> And I remember the darkroom riff happening shortly after that. So it, mm. Matt, you can maybe attest to this, but it may or may not have been inspired by hot chocolate. Everyone's a winner. It, ha-
4: it had to be. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Once you hit that riff, it's not inspired by it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. It was, yeah. yeah. So inspired by that. And I had a girlfriend at the time, and she was really into photography. and And it was kind of, it it was just sort of playing on that, like oh, she's into photography, but, but she, she would like lo- she would like to have a dark room. You know, honestly, I'm just being completely honest. This was it was completely innocent, like the whole idea of oh, wow. dark room, all this stuff. It was like this innocent thing, and then I think it was Joe Colvert was like, dude, so what's up with the dark room, man? You're like. You know, you're talking about like some pretty, some pretty sexual stuff.
1: That's what I was going to say. <laughs> Joe, so Joe looked at the whole thing as a sexual euphemism <laughs> pretty much. Yeah. Though.
4: And I'm like, well, man, I don't. I guess, yeah, I guess I can kind of see that. And then from that point on, it kind of turned into that for me. It's like, man, I, didn't, I, I never even realized. And then when I would listen to it, I was like, oh, oh my gosh, man, you know, it does really sound pretty sexual and like this sort of like, eh, but it, it was you know it was never in 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 my mind writing it and sort of putting it together it never took on that that uh
0: I love that. thing I love that
4: yeah so you know there's there's different ways of listening to it and how you sort of translate it but
0: right like face uh, value it's like a legitimately yeah. sweet song but yeah. with a little, yeah. little interpretation, uh, you're a stalker.
4: Yeah. And it turns into this like, well, uh, you know, what's going on yeah.
0: here. I yeah. love that. Yeah. yeah. Have you all, did
1: you think of it that way? Um, I, I always thought of it as the Joe Colvert thing for what it's worth, but that's our filthy <laughs> brains, I guess. That's not on you. Matt. And
4: I think, I think most people did.
2: So I was kind of, like, well, whatever. Yeah. I just
4: went with it,
1: you know, it's like, eh. I like
4: yeah,
2: that. I remember just to, to digress here a little bit, but I remember, When uh, when we were recording this over at Mahappy's, I think I came over that night that you were working on vocals, and I remember you telling me that like Mahappy showed you kind of like a how to do ELO vocal-ish type things on it. And Darkroom Mm -hmm. was the one that like I, I remember specifically. I think I'm pretty sure you were recording that one that night. And then I remember that same night, I think Joe and Sam Ashworth came over. And mm. we were kind of yelling the backgrounds on uh, paid to think. I think we, while we were there, because you we were looking oh, for yeah. other people that's to funny. yell.
4: I don't remember that. That's funny.
2: Yeah, that's pretty that's cool. cool.
4: Overall, the whole recording process. And just throwing this out there really quick. Yeah. The, uh, I think Matt was like, "Dude, I don't know. I don't want to go downstairs and record your vocals. Why don't you just kind of go do it yourself?" Oh wow. And like, well, and and I did, and I didn't have confidence in doing that. Until I went down there and I would record some stuff. And then Matt would come down and go, like, yeah, man, sounds great. I was like, okay, I guess that's okay. So this was the first time I was ever really, you know, it was put le- left into my hands, which I really appreciate that now, you know, from Matt to like sort of have enough trust in me to like record a vocal or you know record vocal takes. And so I kind of recorded most of the vocals myself. And then I would, I would have Matt come down and listen to it when I was done and be like, hey, how's this? oh, cool, sounds good. I'll maybe fix that part right there, and then let's add some of this. And that was it. So it was really nice to sort of have that freedom to approach the vocals and the vocal takes for for this record in that way. Interesting. Yeah, which was the first time that that ever happened.
0: Was the recording process generally sort of left to your own devices, or was it pretty hands-on generally with Mahaffey, where he would be sort of directing things, or was most of his influence kind of after everything was recorded?
1: I don't I don't personally really remember him being, like, ultra-involved with actual, like... Like, he would add flourishes, if that makes sense. Yeah. But if it came to, like, actually recording the band... Like, I mean, he's present because he's essentially engineering it. And right. And still having to, like, hit the space bar or whatever it is to right. start recording. But, like, for the most part, it would just be, like... Yeah, he would give offer like suggestions in terms of like I think you could do that again. Yeah, but yeah, mm-hmm. not, nothing yeah. like heavy-handed
0: necessarily. You know? Yeah, yeah, that's how I remember. With dark room, that was like one of the rare occasions where he's just sort of like put let you take it on your own. Or did you do most of the vocals that way? No, that's how I did the whole record. Oh wow! That way.
4: And that was the first time it, we you know that I had had that sort of freedom to do that and. It, it was nice you know and it was nice that he sort of trusted me to to throw vocals on there and he you know like, like I was saying he probably had things that he needed to do that were more
0: important <laughs> <laughs> he's like dude just just go record the vocals man it kind of gave you a comfort zone like it
4: did man and i and I, and I, like i was saying I and, I and i sort of i appreciated that because it it made me feel a little bit confident more confident in you know well may, you know maybe i do have a little bit of an idea of what
0: what i'm going for or what what it is that we want anything else on darkroom i like that we've established that it can be taken two ways yes good (laughs) all right oh my love What do we remember about this?
4: I remember that this was Joe Colvert's favorite feature song. Yeah, he always really liked this one. And then uh we reco- we released it as a B-side to Buffalo Head. All right. And and the and the bridge is almost just a direct just like just completely a Roxy Music yeah, rip-off. It,
1: it is. It is. It's just a Roxy Which is, Music rip-off. You know, at that time,
4: no one knew anything yeah. about Roxy Music. And it freaking, you know, to us, it was awesome. You know, it's like, I mean, we weren't trying to, well, we were trying to rip them off because we loved Roxy music at that time. So, you know, and it's really just, it's just us sort of being heavily influenced by that.
1: In in my brain too, like kind of this goes back to the serious thing where like, I think we had some bridges that like just didn't make any sense within context. Somehow the Oh My Love bridge like works in some screwed up way where it's like mm-hmm. like the ser- the serious bridge does too, but like the transition out of it always felt a little sloppy. To me, this one mm-hmm. for some weird reason like comes out of nowhere, but actually like in a way that's actually interesting. I think it's our yeah, best nonsense I feel like bridge. I, remember, I guess, you know. <laughs>
4: uh, yeah, and I feel like I remember when we got this bridge, you know, when while working the song up, just being like, it was one of those just like,
3: yeah mm-hmm.
4: moments, you know, where we had sort of gotten what it was we were going for because you know there's a lot of times and i feel like it's probably this way with most bands it's like you're going for something and you just kind of miss it a little bit but i think we like on that bridge we just kind of like nailed <laughs> what it was we were attempting to get and mm-hmm. we got it so nice
3: yeah
2: just to throw it out there too i mean like it's funny because like i, I keep hearing joe's name get brought up quite a bit and <laughs> It's just so funny because, like, I, you know, right around the same time period with you and Rollum living together, I don't even remember how we started hanging out with these guys, but I remember that like Joe was Culvert was playing in the band Sneaky Eaters with Sam Ashworth and uh, and Ben Patton, ben Patton. and yeah. then there was Life Boy and we were actually yep. that was William Tyler. And, uh, and
1: Sam Smith, we all played a show just, sorry, yeah. but we all played a show at the borough together. So basically both boys, sneak eaters and us happened to get a show. And then that's yeah. how we all met was through that. Yeah.
2: Hmm. But yeah, so it's funny that Joe but, keeps getting brought up. It's funny.
1: Yeah. Well, to add to
4: that, and none of this matters to anybody else, but us, but Raj, to add to that, you know, Will Witherow, he lived over in that subdivision behind Northfield elementary. Oh yeah. Joe Colbert was his neighbor. So I used to go over to Will Witherow's house, and then Joe was just like right down the street. And he, I remember one day he like just shows up. He's got, he's got on like these real short shorts and and wallabies with no socks on. And I'm thinking, <laughs> this is like you know this is like ninety eight, ninety nine. I'm like, dude, who shows up with the wallabies, and no socks?
3: <laughs> Uh,
4: and it's joe Colbert and he's walking over there with like i think he's with ben and we're just hanging out talking i don't know man it was a good time oh do you remember dude Rollin, do you remember their roommate at that
1: time over there was a the huge Bonham guy oh are you talking about that Skyler dude was that a yeah, same Skyler was, was the guitar player and then uh his yeah he had a i'm trying to remember that dude's he name a, but yeah
4: he had like a vista Lite kid or something
1: Yeah. Totally and it was remember. tuned
4: just, it sounded just like Bonham's
3: kit. Yep. <laughs> I t- oh, I, yeah.
1: I totally remember that guy. Cause he, he was the first guy I met that was like, cause th- there's drummers like this where they just worship Bonham and that's all they do. Mm-hmm. It's just like, I'm a drummer in the John Bonham style. That's like literally <laughs> their whole thing is that, but he was, he was the first person I met like that. Yeah. I mean, he was amazing cause you know, John Bonham's mm-hmm. amazing, but like, yeah, that but I totally remember that, yeah. Amazing. Yeah. I, I think they hated us too, right? And Like as a band, not as people.
4: The Skylar and the Bonham drummer.
1: Yeah, did. I think they hated us, <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> like yeah, an they, active, because I remember them actively telling me that. Yeah, I think they, <laughs>
0: they, they hated the you.
1: Yeah, so they're like, like, ah, yeah. I mean, I like the way you guys all play, but ah,
0: you guys just kind of suck. It's like, all right, cool, man. <laughs> Interesting. Uh, I like that you were friends with Life Boy because mm-hmm. Sam Smith did the artwork. He did for yeah. the yeah. Mahaffey Sessions. Yeah, that's bringing it all around. <laughs> yep. Yeah, I
4: don't even. I don't know how many shows we played with Life Boy early on. Quite Man, a bit. We, we yeah. did a lot of stuff. A lot of stuff with Life Boy.
1: Them and the Sneaky Eaters both, I think. You know, like yeah. I, I think like Sam Ben, and Joe and uh, Taylor was the drummer. Yeah, yeah. Oh, great yeah. Drummer. Taylor's great, but yeah, the, I think that that kind of like was our, like, kind of the first Nashville groups I remember playing with personally. Because most yeah. of it was Murfreesboro
0: bands, like Glossary. Right. Cool. Uh, anything else about Oh My Love before we move along? No. We're getting near the end here. All right. Jurley.
4: Shirley <laughs> has many things That she likes to do
0: Making pottery is one of the few. This is an old one.
4: Yeah. So, Charlie was really old. So, my sister, she's five years younger than me, and she had a friend that she went to school with, and she would come over and like stay the night, you know, at our place when we were really young, and she was moving away. And at this time it's like we had the little playhouse like studio that we practiced in. It's like, you know what, I'm gonna let go out here and write a song for Jurley, just out of, you know, sure. being a fun, you know, older brother type thing. Mm-hmm for for Jerley leaving so we i, I write Jurley and like play it for and that was it that's all it was ever supposed to be so then it turns out it's like eh, you know th- we start playing this song every once in a while it's like yeah it's pretty catchy oh and i don't know i don't know why we ended up recording it on this record it's another <laughs> one of those it's like so old and kind of like I think we could have done without it at that time. Well, you know, I think what it is, is that we had six or seven songs that we had worked up and we had written at the time. And we needed, we needed filler
3: mm-hmm. to
4: finish out a record. And Jurley was one of those songs that was just we hadn't done before as the features. And it was like, okay, we can use this as one of the tracks to, to fill in for the record. And it doesn't, it doesn't really fit to me. It doesn't fit the rest of the record. It feels more like mid-90s features where, mm-hmm. you know, we're, we're still sort of like falling into the like Weezer, uh, you know, like influenced by certain things like that. And just uh, I don't know. Uh, it doesn't work. It doesn't work to me as well as
2: a lot of
0: the other uh, tunes on the record. Right. Roger, are you going to add mm-hmm. something in there?
2: Well, I was just going to say I, I, I remember us playing it out a few times and it just kind of being like a, a favorite and like i think if i don't i may be remembering wrong but i thought Mahaffey liked it and he may have suggested it like as a filler no but I don't. Yeah, i'm
4: not sure maybe i'm not sure i do remember recording the guitar solo on that and just kind of like just messing around and playing all these little licks and then Mahaffey happy being like oh that's cool and let me do this and he, he did that thing where it does this little repeat in the middle of it like really fast and i thought holy crap that's you know, and, and, and I really liked the solo, how the solo developed into this like really weird thing. And, and a lot, I will say, and I'm just thinking about this right now, is that that whole section of the solo and how all that developed, Mahaffey had a huge hand in it. Mm-hmm. I always really liked it. It's really cool. And, and Mahaffey just kind of put that whole thing together. It, if he hadn't, it probably would have been a very boring listen but i think he <laughs> what he did to that tune it made it interesting and it, it makes it interesting as interesting as it can
0: be i mean i think the the title alone is very interesting i've always wanted to ask you is jurley a real name and it sounds like it is
4: jurley is a real name and everything in the song is is just kind of real it's like you know I, you know jurley was like this friend of my sister's, and. I was friends with her and she's like moving away to california after several years of just like hanging out with her and it's like okay and that that was a song that i had written you know when i was like i don't know 18. 17, 18.
0: Yeah. I have a very old Thunder 94 bootleg, and I have it written down as Shirley's song. And I wonder (laughs) how many people heard it as Shirley.
2: Yeah. I've actually often wondered if Lightning 100 still has like a copy of that, like an official copy, (laughs) because I don't know that I have an official copy. It's just a bootleg that I have from somebody.
0: Well, I sent someone from Lightning 100 my bootleg. So, no, they do not have an official (laughs) copy, because they were asking me for it. But I'll, I'll keep poking. They say they have a bunch of dat tapes of old, I if, old sessions.
2: I wonder if Dorch has a copy of it, because he's the one that recorded it. I mean, you know, like it went through the truck or whatever. He mixed it, but I wonder if he hmm. recorded it.
0: Hmm. Yeah, I don't know. Well, that's fun. Love the Jurley insight. Finally know that Jurley was a real person. That's great. Yeah. All right. And the last song on the record, Paid to Think. Another older one what do you mm-hmm. remember about this one
4: it was another another filler song that I don't think as the original five piece we ever really recorded right did we record No, you, that with you did it
1: it's it's on one of the soaking in the center of the universe things mm-hmm. okay oh yeah yeah yeah, yeah there is so a
4: I guess we did that
1: Don sings on it
4: yeah but I think we were like eh. out of out of all these older songs which one could we like I don't know revamp a little bit and try to make it work and it was just, you know, I think that was our attempt at trying to find an older song that would fit with these this new batch.
1: Yeah. We had been playing it live, too. Like, that, I think that's yeah. one of the few older ones that, like, it had kind of, like, made its way and kept in the set mm-hmm. a little bit. And that's part of the reason for it. Yeah, it was always fun to play.
0: It's a good song. But it sounds like you just, you had a couple in there that you just needed. Were there other songs from the Mahaffey sessions that are outside of what ended up here on this record? Not to my memory, personally. I don't, do y'all
4: remember anything? No, I think that's it. That's the thing is, I think we were just digging into old material, trying to to have enough to do a full length. Yeah. It was basically the, the, the first side of the record, plus Dark Room and Oh My Love, and I think that was it. Right. So the first five songs, it was like seven songs that were newer, and then the other ones were older. Well, not not counting Armani Suede.
0: So you finished recording this. Is the mixing process mostly on Mahaffey solo, or do you work? I know that you were in—he moved to L.A., at one point. Mm. And you all went out there to mix with him. Think, mm. Is that right? I think it was just Matt
1: and Parrish, if I'm remembering right, going out to mix.
4: Yeah. From what I remember, we mainly went out, and it was mainly Parrish and I, because there were vocals that I still hadn't finished, mm. and there were keyboard parts that Parrish hadn't finished. So... We mainly went out to finish those things, and Matt, you know, Matt, Matt mixed the record. We did, we didn't mix it. Yeah, we didn't. You know, he he kind of did his thing, and it's just like, okay, that'll that work. Right. And uh, but I think the the main reason we Parish and I went out there was just to, to finish up tracks that we hadn't finished yet in Murfreesboro.
0: Does that take you into two thousand? Is it outside of ninety nine at that point?
4: Yeah, I think that would be spring. Like yeah, two thousand.
0: Okay, so. At that point, 2000, SpongeBath is almost on its, like, last gasp of a breath. Mm -hmm. It's not really doing anything. If I recall from working there, they were starting to sign bands that were, like, just not at all what anyone would think was SpongeBath. Like who? Man, I can't even remember the name of them. There was, like, a band from Florida that was, like, really— Is it the
1: C60s? No.
0: C60s was from Florida— and had a power pop punky kind of thing going. Mm-hmm. But there was another writer or a musician from Florida that came up. And I just remember being like so unbelievably turned off by the whole experience like Mm -hmm. he was writing like snotty pop punk songs and i was like what are y'all doing like the murfreesboro scene Spongebath is here to take these incredible musicians from the murfreesboro scene and like build them up and that was just not happening anymore like the direction of the label was not what i believed it to be as a 19 or 20 year old they did sign Nodal, which I thought was a Matt Meeks – that was actually a Matt Meeks acquisition and was phenomenal. Let's, I don't know if you've ever yeah. heard that record. It's so fun. And then a band called Call Florence Pal, which sounds exactly like Self, okay, but in a good way. But, yeah, the, the label was just sort of not doing much anymore. So you have a record, and the label is kind of dying, like – what happened? Why doesn't this record come out? Is it just simply because Spongebath was like, we've moved along or we're done? I mean, or were you all not
1: into it? The the vague memory I have of this, and and again that it's really going back like twenty three years, <laughs> right? Um, if i'm remembering right the intent with this record was to shop it to a label oh to a different label right as was the thing at the time right so
0: like self went to dreamworks the katies went went to to electra Electra. right
1: Right. and and us to do and i could be wrong about this but i if memory serves that's what it was like and yeah just i don't beyond that i have no clue All, all i know is that we like to our credit i think as a group it was never one of those things where it's like Oh, we recorded the thing. Let's rest on it and see what happens. Like, we just didn't do mm-hmm. that. And it was just continuing moving. Right. Yeah. And just keep rehearsing, keep writing songs, keep doing things. Oh, that's things. great. And yeah, so I guess, like, having said that, like, I don't actually, like, really know what happened with this record after it was done. It was just like, yeah. oh, we're still writing and recording. Oh, that's
0: great. And I, I, I In my mind, I always had mental. a much different like I told myself a different story because I, I actually had never had any idea what really happened with this. Yeah. I I
1: never looked at personally. I never looked at it like, Oh, that thing failed and didn't get us a deal. Right. Oh, I guess we got to write new songs. It was just more like, Oh, we're, just a band writing songs and playing shows. Right. That's yeah. way more positive. Keeping momentum. Yeah. So,
2: yeah.
0: do you all have similar memories? Raj, do you. To, yeah. I mean,
2: I don't, I don't really recall what was going on at that point. I just remember, like, I mean, the last thing I remember hearing was, you know, just the kind of the the dissolve of SpongeBath. And and so we didn't really want to, for it to come out, SpongeBath go away. Right. And, you know, then it not do anything, get any promotion at all. But that's kind of the only thing I remember about it at that point.
0: Right, and and again, yeah. good to remember the the time period ninety nine and two thousand. If you digital distribution isn't an option, like it's yeah. just not a thing.
1: It's it's also like an era that was like. I mean, to put it into perspective, it was like the pre is back period. So like it's pre franz Ferdinand, it's pre-White yeah. Stripes, it's pre-Strokes, it's pre any of that happening. Right. Yeah, so, like
0: Britney and, Spears is huge. Like Backstreet Boys are yeah. huge. Like, and,
1: and as far as rock goes, like Woodstock ninety nine literally happened the year this was recorded, <laughs> yeah. just to put it into perspective. Yeah. So like the actual like music world at the time from like a label perspective, like a major label perspective, was very like aggressive, mm-hmm. kind of macho yes. rock and roll, which we just didn't fit into yeah. in a remote way. And and I, I feel really fortunate that like we happen to be in Murfreesboro at the time and had happened to have even found a crowd at that time. Yeah. When, I, when I think about the perspective of that, I think it's like very unusual that we just happen to like whatever crowd happened to be there to like presumably going to MTSU, right. whatever it is, like we happen to actually be lucky enough to like have a crowd that responded to whatever it is we were doing, which was yeah. very not contemporaneous. Right. It, it, no, yeah. for sure. it was very strange music at the time. I think
2: I just remember like there being like major label search, but then like all these Indie labels were starting to become popular, like sub pop. And yep. so they were kind of like just I just remember like being labels were just different at the time. And for sure, it, we weren't really getting, I guess, shot to the right labels
0: or whatever. Right. Well, there's sub pop and, and like well, merge records and up yeah, records and like lots of indies. But you're already on an indie right so you yeah. wouldn't shop to an indie and and <laughs>
1: what we were doing even in terms of like indie rock at the time wasn't remotely contemporaneous because i mean it, like elephant 6 was still a thing that was popular then so right. like even mm-hmm. the indie rock that was out tended to be like pretty lo-fi or or veer like post rock
0: right right and this style. is like highly produced yes it's pop yes yeah
4: Well, sure. to me another thing that's very important to remember at this time is that we were a band from Tennessee. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No bands from Tennessee. If your relation was anywhere close to Nashville or in in the area, there, like, Self was an exception that sort of broke outside of that. But anytime we ever got press for doing small tours or anything, there was this sort of shadow over the band mm-hmm. because we were from Tennessee. Yeah. And, and it was like that for years and years and years and it just it felt like it, you know and it it, it honestly felt like it, it never went away until you know fast forward several years and Kings of Leon yeah. kind of happened yep and a lot of things changed at that point but man it was hard it was hard as a rock band in tennessee in middle tennessee especially at that time i think there were some bands from memphis you know in the 90s mm-hmm. that were able to like stir a little bit right. make make a little bit of progress and some waves but if you were from Middle Tennessee or anywhere near Nashville and had any sort of association with that during that time, you might as well forget it. Uh, for like. sure. I
0: mean, you had you like Super Drag broke out of Knoxville, right? And that was like yeah. a big deal. Yeah. But yeah, very yeah, rarely.
4: Yeah, I mean that was the thing. It's like you know, to even I remember when Rollum joined. I mean, Super Drag. We would talk about Super drag. Oh, freaking awesome, man! You know, Super Drag. Yeah. Like, I mean, they were a local band. We considered local, and they had you know done something. And it was just such a rarity
3: yeah. to
1: see and that. I felt that way about myself in high school. Like, yeah. I, cause I mean, I don't know if y'all related to that, but I just remember like being in, in like 10th grade and like Canon would be played on the radio. And it's like, they're from Murfreesboro? Like twenty yeah. miles from me? Like this is incredible. Like, <laughs> yeah, it was huge. Yeah.
2: I remember at one point, like when in our bios and everything, like they were always trying to push Sparta, Tennessee. Yeah. I mean, that's where we all grew up. And then, you know, when Rollum came along, we started to move more toward Murfreesboro, Tennessee. And then whenever we would go on tours, people were always asking, like, where where what, is that? So we ended up having to say pronounce Murfreesboro. Yeah. So like, just say you're from Nashville. Yeah, <laughs> so we had to change it all yeah. to Nashville.
4: You know, t- to answer your your question, the original question, I, maybe it may be a question really for Rory because I'm not. You know, I will say from my own personal standpoint, with me, there was always an issue with confidence when mm-hmm. it came to records and them being released. And having confidence in that record. So I guess what I'm getting at is that if we would record a record, whether it was Farachi or Dorch or the Mahaffey sessions, and we would get either no feedback or negative feedback, mm. in my mind, automatically it, it just sucks. You know, yeah. like we we need to just move on. Okay, no there, no one's going to like this. This person doesn't like it. We're moving on. Forget it. Whatever. You know, and and that's sort of to my own. It's like my own thing. It's like a personal struggle. But it's like if, if we had released it at that time, who, I mean, who knows? You know.
0: It, well, I don't think you should take that I, as your own personal struggle. If, only, if people are only giving you negative feedback about something yeah. you worked really hard on, that doesn't feel great.
4: Yeah. So you know, and I think a lot of times <laughs> that that with me that that was why things wouldn't get released because I, I wouldn't be if I didn't feel like anyone else was passionate about it. I I wasn't going to continue to be passionate about it. You know what I mean? Yeah. But as far as how I, I, the only thing I remember about, I I feel like I vaguely, vaguely remember. And the only reason I remember this is because of the, the sparks reference, but I vaguely remember uh, maybe a handful of these songs being sent around and someone in the UK actually reviewed it in a positive light. Mm. And we thought, man, that's, that's awesome. You know, someone in the UK got it yep. and they and they referred to us as like this sort of like new wave type fresh sound that has a little bit of Sparks influence like lyrically and and that I vaguely remember that and mainly because of the the Sparks. Like that was the first time I even ever heard the name. Oh, yeah. I think that that might have been the one positive thing I ever remember hearing about the record, and then beyond that, it's like it's time to move on. So,
0: <laughs> well, that's funny yeah. to me because, I, I, you know, as we mentioned at the top, I got a, you know, a, a CDR, you know, it's like a a burned down CD of the mixes that wherever they were at at the time, and like. Held on to it for 20 years. And then I've talked to so many other people as I've been telling people about this record that it's been coming out. People are like, oh man, Todd Hedrick over at Vinyl Tap here in Nashville. He's like, I've had a CDR of this for 20 years. I listen to it all the time. People did respond to this record very positively. Yeah. You were just not hearing that. I actually did, because during live shows, we never
1: did those hand claps on Darkroom, but the entire crowd would do them when we played <laughs> them.
0: So, uh, you know, I, I do think, as I mentioned before, I think that this record is like a bridge. This is the bridge between the five piece and the beginning. Obviously, yeah, I mean, yeah, l- literally, yeah, I this agree. is the record that Absolutely. you made in there. But yeah. it's also like you're becoming better songwriters. You're like gelling together as a band. Mm-hmm. And then the beginning is just like a, a massive evolution from this as well. Mm-hmm. So I think it's great that you did this record. I agree. I think it led to great things because I think the beginning EP is wonderful and then that just opens up this whole career beyond that. And hopefully you learned something or or got something from this experience that informed those future experiences, either negatively or positively. Like, oh, I don't want to do a Mahaffey recording. I want to go to Brian Carter's house and record together. I mean, even if that's what you got from it, that's a good thing.
4: As far as the process of it and creating it i i don't remember anything negative
1: yeah
3: same sure yeah I don't, I don't
4: i don't remember even ever any of us having a the tiny spat between us you know i just think at that time we were like really excited and really eager and anxious to make music to me it was like a very magical time mm-hmm. you yeah. know for the band and just in my life in general yeah you know it it was it was a good time, I mean, it was a good time to be in Murfreesboro.
0: It was a great time to be in Murfreesboro. Probably the yeah. optimal time to be in Murfreesboro.
4: I mean, I know that's yeah. me being biased, but pretty... no, it was great, man. Yeah. It was great. There was so many great people there, and, mm-hmm. and so many good things happening. I mean, honestly, people will disagree all they want, but I honestly feel like you know that little tribe of Murfreesboro is a big part of where Nashville went in like the early, yeah,
0: I, or early 100% you know
4: like a lot of people from Murfreesboro at that time moved to Nashville and sort of created I feel like or jump started what was able to happen with rock music in Nashville or any other kind of music but just sort of jump start the whole I feel like what I would consider the, the real music city now I feel like a lot of that came from Murfreesboro
0: yeah I would yeah, not yeah. disagree yeah for yeah. sure well i think we've covered the mahafi sessions we got it i think we got it uh are there any additional notes or anecdotes that you that you recall through this process that you want to share
2: just that it was a magical moment in time with these guys i mean i totally can't think of a better better group of guys to be friends with and make great music with like, yes <laughs> oh man
4: you know i want to I want to mention Parrish. Yeah. Yeah. yeah we should talk about same. Parrish. Uh, Parrish yeah, You know, he's no, he's no longer with the band, but you know, you know, Parrish was a very big role. I mean, he was, you know, well, obviously a fourth of the band.
2: You think of wonder.
4: And at that time, it, it wasn't very fashionable to have a keyboard player, even like through the nineties, when the features were doing this, it was like, eh, yeah. he's a keyboard player in this band. It's pretty, pretty weird. But you know, Parrish played some great parts and it really contributed to
2: the overall sound of the band a lot. Oh, um, Yeah. Yeah, it's like once we missed that, you know, once Don left, like Parrish filled a bigger role. And mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. He certainly did.
4: Yeah, and I hope he's doing great, man. I haven't talked to him in a long time, but I hope he's doing great.
0: Yeah, for anyone listening, Parrish is not included on this because we don't know how to get in contact with him. We would love to talk with Parrish, but we don't know how to get in contact with him. Otherwise, we would have him here to share his feelings as well. If you know where, how to get in contact with Parrish, <laughs> reach out. We'd love to say hello and thank you. I want to send him some copies. But uh, he's ph- phenomenal on this record. And there are, you know, listening to these songs and just thinking about feature songs from this era everybody's parts are so distinct the guitar the vocals the drums the bass lines and the keyboards like you can't separate any of those pieces from how much the features hits home so perfectly with all of those parts like this wouldn't work without Parrish. and agreed he, he, he did a phenomenal agreed.
2: job Yep. absolutely
0: i really appreciate you all spending a long time with me to talk about this record that is 24 Dude, you're gonna years have a
4: old i'm trying to edit this down this is <laughs>
0: it's going to be a blast being a little <laughs> i i thought you all might want to bail after like an hour because it's an old record and maybe you just want to fly through it but you gave me such great information and i am really happy to bring this out to features fans and and hopefully people appreciate this little piece of late 90s history and then dive into really where the band kind of started like after this record there's so much more features to hear and i I hope everyone takes that opportunity to listen to more features because there's just a ton of it to hear really 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 appreciate you all taking the time to talk to me about this for (laughs) two hours of going song by song about a 24-year-old record. Really appreciate
2: it. Well, I just want you to know that we're thankful that you want to release this and for this to come out. I hope you don't think I'm
0: just a weird, creepy stalker, you know, like Darkroom style. I hope it's uh, not, not too strange, but this is a really important record for me. You know, I was 18 or 19 when this came to me and it influenced me in a lot of ways. Like all these bands that you sort of funneled into this became things that I discovered through this. So it was a big deal to me, too. So I, or thank you.
2: Well, we're very thankful and honored that you want to do this. Thank you.
0: Alright, folks. That's our show. Thank you for listening. Huge, huge thanks to the band for spending so much time with me and sharing so many details about the record. I loved every moment of it. If you want to submit some music for a future We Own This Town music episode, hit us up at We Own This Town on Instagram or Twitter, or email me directly, michael at net. If you aren't subscribed to the show, please do me a favor and hit that subscribe button. Many thanks to Upright T-Rex Music for the music playing underneath me right now. You can find them at utxmusic.com. If you want to pick up the Mahaffey Sessions 1999, go over to thefeatures.com. That's where all of the information is. It'll lead you to all the streaming services and the vinyl option. If you want to buy that, I'm biased as I mentioned, but Hey, it's a good thing to purchase. It's a great record. All right. Take care of yourselves. I'll talk to you later.